You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works 225 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 10, which is Part 3, The Spiritual Perspective, given in Dornach on the 22nd of July, 1923. As earthly beings, humans are familiar with three alternating states of consciousness. The waking state from waking up until falling asleep, then the opposite state, which is the sleeping state, where the soul immerses itself in spiritual darkness, so to speak, and has no experience of the environment. And between these two, the dream state, in which experiences we've had while awake play a part, but where, through certain very significant and interesting inner forces, these waking experiences are subtly altered, as, for example, when something that happened far in the past seems to be in the immediate present, or where something that passed by without our giving it a thought, and which we hardly noticed in our usual waking state, then turns up in our dream life. The dream state connects things that don't normally belong together. At the same time, it's a characteristic feature of the dream state that all that we perceive in a dream the dream content mostly consists of images, and even when we hear a word in a dream, then it's the image of the word that we perceive, the sound of the word, the tone modulation, all contributing to the image, an audible image, one the soul can hear. Now, there is much in a dream which can deeply preoccupy us human beings but we can't really gain an insight into real spiritual existence if we aren't able to develop a valid concept of these three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and sleeping. So, today, with the help of spiritual science, we want to describe these three states of consciousness as far as possible. Firstly, the state of waking consciousness. Human beings can become aware that on waking up they lead a conscious life by starting to utilize the organs of the body and of thinking which is bound to the body. Even if they don't know that the I, capital, and the astral body descend into the physical and etheric bodies when they wake up, still they can sense, perhaps in a vague but still clearly perceptible manner, how they gradually have power over their limbs power over their organs and the power to develop their own thinking. All this can teach human beings how their waking life is dependent on the physical body. And when we study the etheric body or body of formative forces from the perspective of spiritual science, then we have to say that this waking life is also dependent on the etheric body, just as it is on the physical one. We have to immerse ourselves in both these parts and use this human organization in order to lead our waking daily lives. 
Now, if we don't begin to look at our waking lives from the point of view of spiritual science, then we can indulge in the most diverse illusions about it. We don't need to say much about the life of the senses, for what could be clearer than the fact that we employ our sense organs in our waking lives, and that these sense organs communicate to us what is going on around us as a revelation of the physical world. We need only briefly examine the essence of these sense organs, and we'll discover how, through the relationship of the eye, EYE, the ear and the other senses to the environment, there develops as a revelation of the world of the senses what we humans call our daily experience. What we really have to examine more closely is thinking or imagining. We should be very clear that in our thinking we have initially only an internalization of the life of the senses. If we look at ourselves honestly, then we have to say, through the senses I receive impressions, and then in my thinking I continue these impressions inwardly. And when we study our thoughts, we find that they are just shadowy reflections of what was conveyed to us by the senses. In a way, our thinking is directed completely toward the outside. Thinking is the activity of the etheric body or body of formative forces, so that we can say, when we're awake and thinking as sensual earthly beings, then our etheric body or body of formative forces is directed toward the outside. But this is only one aspect of the etheric body. If we only look at what we normally have in our waking consciousness, thoughts about the outside world, then it's as if for some reason we could only look at a person physically from behind. Now imagine you would have seen a number of people only from the back. You'd have ideas about these people which you'd possibly never be able to corroborate. You'd be curious, inquisitive about what these people looked like from the front, and you'd be convinced from the start that the front of them was as much a part of them as the back, and that for an earthly human being the front is the more expressive part. This is how it is when we become aware of the thinking of the world outside. We see thinking from behind. It's turned around because the direction of the flow of sense impressions in human beings is from front to back. Even where it seems to be otherwise, we have to think of it in this way. What is physically represented as being the front, that is, for our thinking, the back. And basically we have to put ourselves in the position of looking at human thinking from the other side, where it's not turned toward the impressions of the senses, but shows us its hidden inner aspect. Then, however, we arrive at something very strange. Then thinking no longer presents itself as it does when we fill our consciousness with sense images of the outside world. Seen from this aspect, our thinking, which is made up of the power of the etheric body or body of formative forces, transforms itself into forces which build up our physical organism, the creative forces in our physical organism. When we grow, when our organs are built up from their germinal state and are formed three-dimensionally, this is the other side of thinking. 
which emanating from the etheric body actively intervenes and works on our organization. What works and lives in us when we grow and when we metabolize our food, what appears in us as formative forces, this is the other side of thinking. Ordinary thinking only produces shadowy thoughts in us. It's the rear aspect of thinking. However, what gives our thinking apparatus, its form, what shapes our brain, and our entire nervous system is the creative power of thinking. And at the same time, this is the creative power of the etheric body or body of formative forces. This is the other side. It doesn't need much clairvoyant power to become aware of how, in human beings, this power of thinking works as a force of growth, as a formative force. You only need to give yourself a bit of a shake and then you realize that thinking is not just a shadowy image of the outside world, but an inner activity. You just need to turn away from this orientation to the outside. Turn toward the inner activity, toward your thinking, then you become conscious of the activity of thinking. In grasping the act of thinking, we can begin to understand what human freedom is. Understanding freedom is the same as realizing the activity of thinking. Hence, by understanding the activity of thinking, we also realize true morality, which flows through and permeates human beings. Realizing thinking as an active element and understanding pure thought as something other than just letting our thinking fill up with sense impressions, this turning away from the external to the internal was what I tried to make clear in my title, Philosophy of Freedom. I wanted to show how we humans can grasp this thought activity inwardly, and how in making the inner leap to pure thinking, unencumbered by sense impressions, we also grasp morality as something which can blossom in pure thinking. In this way we achieve freedom consciousness. Thus our human thinking in its initial form just shows us shadowy images of the outside world of the senses. But if we let it turn around in front of us, then it becomes the creative forming force of human beings themselves, the inner activity and bearer of freedom, and as such of what we can glimpse as moral impulses in the human entity. In this way we progress spiritually from the physical body to the etheric body or body of formative forces. So the first step into the spiritual world is to really experience the feeling of freedom. Now, let's look at dream consciousness. Dreams can be chaotic. They can be frightening and scary. They can be sweet. But they're always living and weaving in pictures that they conjure up before the soul. If we ignore the content and just look at the drama of the dream, then we see how on waking up or on falling asleep the soul lives and weaves in these dream images. Here a certain soul force expresses itself. We could argue about whether these images are true or false, but the fact that they could be formed at all shows us that there is a force in the soul which generates them. There is an inner force which puts these dream images before the soul. There is an inner weaving soul power which generates dreams. 
Look for a moment at the process of waking up. As you emerge from the darkness of sleep, you can feel the existence of this inner weaving power, but then it submerges itself in the physical and etheric bodies. If this didn't happen, then you'd continue dreaming. It's the power of the astral body, the astral body which outside the physical and etheric bodies is not able to become conscious of itself, begins to sense itself, to sense its own power on waking up, when it feels the resistance of the physical and etheric bodies as it submerges itself. In dreams it appears to be chaotic, but it's the soul's own power which lives in them from falling asleep until waking up and then submerging itself. This means the power behind dreams flows out into the physical and etheric bodies. It submerges itself in the blood circulation and in the tonus of the muscles and in the etheric body too. These processes amplify the power of dream creation, which, left to its own devices, is only weak and impotent. The dream images just scurry about when the power of dream creation is on its own. But when it unites with the physical and etheric bodies and can use their organs, then it becomes a strong force. What does this force do when it becomes stronger? Well, in humans, it develops memory. Memory is none other than the creative dream force which has submerged itself in the physical and etheric bodies. The dream descends into the physical body and is integrated into the physical world order, so that it's no longer chaotic, but forms memories, the content of memory in the physical world. We wouldn't be able to remember anything if we didn't bring the power of dreams back from sleep into the physical body. For in the physical body, the creative dream force becomes the power of memory. When you sit there quietly, not focused on the external world of the senses, and let your memories pass by, those memories which just emerge and perhaps comfort you or make you happy, other memories which inspire fantasies, when you do something like this, then it's the creative dream force strengthened by the physical and etheric bodies, which is active in you. This is the same dream force, which when the astral body was outside the physical and etheric bodies, was immersed in the spirit of the world, and experienced there the mysteries of all things. If when you were asleep you were able to experience this same power, which in the waking state forms your memory, completely unfurled, outside of the physical and etheric bodies, then you wouldn't have the chaotic images of dreams, which only develop in those moments when the astral body descends into the physical and etheric bodies. You would be immersed in the outside world, asleep and free of the physical and etheric bodies, experiencing yourself in a majestic world of images. This world of images would be the cosmic reflection of what appears when you sit quietly and let memories appear and disappear. Your life of memories is the microcosmic mirror image of that gigantic, majestic, macrocosmic weaving and flowing of images which our dream force goes through when the astral body 
is immersed not in the physical and etheric bodies, but in the phenomena and processes of the external cosmos. When we speak of the spiritual content of our souls, we find that it mainly ebbs and flows with what lives in the memories that we've formed from the sense impressions of the world outside and which touched our innermost selves. Basically all the good times and the tragedies, all that made us happy or that made us suffer. So when we look at the soul spiritual content of our memories, we should wake up to the reality that we all owe all this to the fact that the force of dream creation, which is actually related to the cosmos, can descend into our inner being. And what lives and works in the cosmos as formative forces becomes internalized in human beings as the soul powers of memory. We can feel connected in our powers of memory with all the creative and active forces of the cosmos. And we can say, if I look out at how in spring the plants start to grow and how in the forests the trees develop out of seeds over years and tens of years, and when I look up at the clouds and how they change under the influence of the more external forces of form, or how the mountains form and erode. When I look at the work of all these formative forces right up to the stars, then I can say in my soul, I have something related very closely to all that. In my soul I have the powers of memory, and these are the microcosmic images of what works in the outer world and weaves in the metamorphosis of all things. Now, let us look at the I, capital, which in the sleep state also leaves the physical and etheric bodies and connects to cosmic phenomena and processes. We then become aware of how we humans are able to immerse ourselves in things with our underlying being, even if we only experience it unconsciously when we're outside. Then the eye itself emerges from deep sleep and comes down into the physical and etheric bodies. And here only someone initiated into spiritual science can follow it. The descent of the dream force into the physical body as memory gives our ordinary consciousness an indication of what is happening. However, only when we have developed imagination, as I've described it in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds, can we now learn to observe how the I, which between falling asleep and waking up, dwells in the phenomena and processes of the cosmos, then descends into the physical and etheric bodies? In the present phase of human earthly evolution, this I is so powerless that when they fall asleep, people are immediately submerged in utter darkness, the darkness of the soul. But when this eye descends into the physical and etheric bodies, it is strengthened through them and can seize and utilize the blood vessels and the innermost power of the blood and work through them. This too has its expression in our waking consciousness during the day. The eye, which has immersed itself in the physical and etheric bodies, can then express itself. The eye is what lives and weaves in human beings as freedom, and it is free to express itself or not to express itself. But when it does, then its characteristic expression is the human power of love. We would never be able to blossom in love 
for another being, or a process, in a sense, to become one with them. If our eye didn't actually leave us every night and immerse itself in the phenomena and processes of the outside cosmos, it really does immerse itself in them. By slipping back into us as we wake up, it gives us the inner power to love, which it has attained outside. This is what appears in the deepest, innermost parts of the soul as a threefold power, freedom, memory, the power of love. Freedom is the primordial inner form of the etheric body, or body of formative forces. The power of memory is the creative dream force of the astral body when it is active within us. Love is the power which appears within us and leads us to devote ourselves to something outside ourselves. By sharing in this threefold power, the human soul steeps itself in the life of the spirit. By developing these three powers, the sense of freedom, the power of memory, through which we connect past and present, the power of love, through which we can devote our inner life to something outside ourselves and become one with the outside world, our soul becomes spiritualized. If we understand this with the appropriate inner attitude, then we realize what it means that we human beings bear the Spirit in our souls. And if we don't understand this threefold inner spiritualization of the soul, then we can't understand how the human soul holds the Spirit. This extends also to life in general. If we're capable of establishing an inner connection between memory and love, our life of memories through the astral body, love through the I, capital, in certain cases wonderful things can happen. This is how we can realize these things directly in our lives. We remember someone who we loved long after their death. We carry their image in our souls. That means we add to those sense impressions we had of them while they were alive what remains to us since these last were denied us. In memory, we continue our life with the dead person with all the intensity and strength of our soul without having any support through the external impressions of the senses. Now, we try to make these memories so vibrant that it seems to us as if the dead person is actually there and full of life. We still remain aware that this is all through memory, but afterward we connect this power that is developed through the strengthening of the astral body with the power that we have through our eye, the power of love. We sustain the intense love we had for the dead person beyond the grave. We make ourselves capable of connecting the power of love with the image, which doesn't receive any more sensual stimulation, in the same manner as if we develop this love further with the help of sense impressions. In this way, we can strengthen what the astral body and the eye are otherwise only able to express when they use the organs of the physical body. When we keep the memory of the dead person alive, a memory which can no longer be stimulated by the physical body and etheric body, if we keep it so active and alive that we can relate to it with intense love, then this is a way of cutting the astral body and the eye loose to a certain extent while remaining awake especially in the memories of the dead, that we're able to preserve. There lies the first stage of the liberation of the eye and the astral body from the physical and the etheric bodies, while still remaining awake.
If people understood what keeping memories alive means, what it means to contemplate the image that remains of the dead person, to regard it just as we regarded it when the person was alive, then they would experience in this a path leading to the threshold that lies between the physical and the spiritual worlds, and to the astral body and the eye becoming free. This is the kind of jolt which the following experience shows. First, we have the living memory, as if the dead person were still there. We know that through our waking consciousness we can connect to this image with the love that we'd normally only have if we had the sense impressions we received from them when they were alive. The jolt happens when we are able to develop the necessary inner strength. There is a jolt and we cross over the threshold to the spiritual world. The dead person can now be with us in all reality. This is one of the ways into the spiritual world. It is connected to what we can only regard with reverence, what we can only experience in reverence and with a certain grave inner bearing. If we let the seriousness associated with ideas, such as I have just described in the case of crossing the threshold to the spiritual world, work on our souls, if we truly realize this gravity, then we can get an idea of the seriousness inherent in entering into the spiritual world. We will have to have experienced, through our own free will, the profound seriousness of life, if we truly want to enter the spiritual world, truly want to understand the spiritual world. This is what the science of initiation has wanted to impress upon external civilization throughout the ages. This too is what our so externalized times really need. It's a curious phenomenon that today dogmatic science is more important to people than reality. In each moral deed humans can become aware of their freedom. And just as we experience red or white, so do we as human beings experience freedom. But we deny it. We repudiate it under the influence of modern science. Why? This is because modern science only wants to look at the mechanical, where the earlier event is always the cause of the later, and science dictates that everything has its cause. Causality dictates this as dogma and as causality must be right because people swear by it, so they have to deaden their sense of freedom. Reality is plunged into darkness to perpetuate the dogma, in this case the dogma of external science, which exercises such authority over people. Science does away with life. If life became conscious of itself in human beings, then this life would grasp freedom directly in the activity of thinking. Thus, this purely external science, built on causality alone, is the great slayer of the life sense of human beings. We have to be aware of this. Can we then hope that when people abolish their experience of freedom, they can still gain access to spiritual form, to the spiritual gestalt of memory? Can we then hope that such a person can recognize in memory the creative cosmic weaving power of dreams, just as they recognize the working of the color red in the red rose? Can we hope that such a person can achieve knowledge of the second stage, when already at the first stage they've killed off their sense of freedom because of the dogma of causality? 
such a person fails to discover the spirituality of their own soul, and they can't reach down to the depths where it becomes clear that apart from its capacity to live outside among cosmic phenomena during sleep, in the spiritual world the eye can learn to love through the spirit. The ultimate basis of love lies in the spirit-forged I that descends into the human physical and etheric organism. Realizing the spiritual nature of love means also, in a certain sense, realizing the spiritual itself. Who realizes love realizes spirit. But in realizing love, you have to go as far as realizing the inherent spiritual experience of love. This is precisely where our civilization has completely lost its way. Memory is a living weaving in our innermost soul, and here the differences aren't as clear and profound. Only mystical spirits such as Swedenborg, Meister Eckhart, Johannes Tauler, can sense the living weaving eternal spirit when they steep themselves in memory and speak of the spark of inspiration that lights up in human beings when they become conscious of memories. Inside these memories live microcosmically the same creative formative forces which live and weave outside and lie dreamlike behind all cosmic existence. Things aren't as clear there. But they become clear when we go up to the third stage where we see how in this third stage our civilization has failed to recognize the primeval spiritual reality and activity of love. All spiritual phenomena have, of course, their external sensual form as the spirit immerses itself in the physical. It embodies itself in the physis. But if it then loses awareness of itself and only perceives the physical, then it believes that what is really inspired by the spirit is inspired by the physical. This is the delusion of our age which doesn't know love. There are only fantasies about love, lies even. When thinking of love, our age knows only eroticism. I'm not saying that the lonely don't experience love, for in their unconscious feeling, in their unconscious will, human beings deny spirit much less than in their thinking. But when people in our modern civilization think or speak of love, then they're really speaking of eroticism. And we could even say that if we peruse contemporary literature, wherever we find the word love, really we should substitute the word eroticism. This is all that thinking, doused in materialism, can know of love. It's the denial of spirit which makes the power of love into an erotic force. In many fields, not only has the genie of love had to give way to its lowly servant eroticism, but in many places now, its opposite, the demon of love has appeared. The demon of love is spawned when what is divinely ordained in human beings is taken over by human thinking. This intellectuality tears it away from the spirit. So the descent sequence is as follows. We recognize the genius of love. We have spiritualized love. We recognize the inferior version eroticism, but we gravitate to the demon of love. 
The genius of love has its demon, not in the original gestalt, but in the interpretation of sexuality through modern civilization. How often today, when they try to approach love, do people speak not even of eroticism, but only of sexuality? The discourse on sexuality in contemporary society consists mainly of what people like to call sex education. In this modern, intellectualized discourse on sexuality dwells the demonology of love. Just as the genius that the age should be following appears on another level as its demon, because the demon manifests itself where the genius is denied, so it is in this sphere where spirit is meant to appear in its most intimate form, in the form of love. Our age often worships not the genius of love, but the demon of love, and mistakes the spirit of love for its demon in sexuality. This sphere is predestined to be completely misunderstood, for what originally lives in sexuality is permeated with spiritual love, Humanity, however, can fall short of this spiritualization of love, especially in this age of intellectualism. For if the intellect takes on the form I spoke of yesterday, then the spirituality of love is forgotten, and only its external form is given credence. Human beings are capable of denying their own true being. They deny it when they sink down from the genius of love to the demon of sexuality. Now, I do understand the way people feel about these things in our present times. When we think about this, then we have to say to ourselves, Anthroposophy can be a guide, not only for our thinking, but also for our innermost soul being and soul life, and to rediscovering spirit deep in our soul. We can become intimate with Anthroposophy, and we do this when we know how to embrace it in its full reality. Today someone suggested that we should develop an image or something similar of anthroposophy. But does such an image exist in reality? Do we need an image? What we really need is to become intimate with anthroposophy in innermost sincerity. Then it can permeate the whole inner fabric of our soul life, our soul being. We shouldn't try to make an external image for ourselves. Rather, we should become intimate with this living being, anthroposophy, which, if we are united with each other as people who understand these things, should be walking among us. If we really live with anthroposophy as an actual being, which in a higher sense walks among us, if we ourselves are authentic and intimate with anthroposophy, then the impulse will arise in us to really experience what humanity needs to experience so very much in our present age, not just an image for the eyes of the soul, but heartfelt love of the being of anthroposophy. This is what we need, and it could be the greatest impulse for our times. I tried here to add to the physical perspective and the soul perspective that I described previously, the spiritual perspective of anthroposophy. The spiritual perspective isn't an external tracking of the spirit, but just the opposite experiencing anthroposophy in the most intimate depths of the human soul and the human heart. And this deep, intimate experience of anthroposophy in the human soul and in the human heart is precisely the meditation that leads us to a real encounter with anthroposophy. I have attempted to present the three perspectives of anthroposophy to you 
the physical perspective, the soul perspective, and the spiritual perspective. The end of Lecture 10